Hey guys, hope you're doing well. Wanted to hop on here and record this episode while it's fresh in my head. Um, this is something I've been thinking about for a while and I was just really excited about it. So I wanted to share it um, before it morphed into a million other thoughts because as I started to look into it and study this a little bit more, I realized, man, you could literally talk about this um, forever. But I think the more that I thought about it, the more I studied, the more it kind of got away from like the one point that I just thought was fascinating and I just started building layers and layers and layers of study around it which is great but um, I don't want to take away from the the one point that I, I really think is worth sharing with you today that inspired me to record this right now so um, we're gonna go ahead and get started um, so for those of you that aren't aware I keep the Passover and I know that initially this makes me sound Jewish which if you listen to anything else I post you'll know that that's not true I fully believe in the divinity and the messiahship of Jesus Christ, um, but in the spirit of following Christ, I, along with those who believe like I do, keep the Passover after the same manner that Christ did, which um, can be seen in the book of John specifically. Um, it can be seen in other gospels as well, but in the book of John, it shares um, a little bit more information, which reflects the two main portions of the observance that uh, I partake of. Um, that being the taking of the bread and the wine and the foot washing. So my main point today focuses in on the foot washing, but for those of you who aren't familiar with me or what I believe um, or don't believe like I do, because I realize a lot of people that listen to this podcast are in my church and believe the same thing I do, so they might not need this refresher, but um, the Passover is coming up quickly, so this is a very seasonal topic. And uh, I thought it would be good to at least go through some of the basics of why I keep it. Um, and in that way, I think we can kind of build a good base for everyone to be starting on the same footing. So this is kind of like the prequel to the episode, which is just kind of about Passover in general. And specifically, we're going to first go through the bread and the wine um, so that we can then build up to that foot washing portion, which I think is a little bit less familiar to Christians that don't practice Christianity in the same way that I do. So, like I said, bread and the wine, that's where we're going to start at. And I think most people are familiar with this. Catholics and a lot of mainstream Christians call this communion. Um, and it's taken weekly in a lot of cases. But it's a very familiar concept. Bread and wine representing the blood and body of Christ. And I take the bread and the wine in the same symbolism that any of you Christians who practice it like this understand it. Um, I truly believe that um, it is representative of the blood and body of Jesus Christ that was given for my life. And so accepting that bread and wine is symbolic of reacceptance of his sacrifice for me. So I think it's really, really important. Um, where I differ with you, if you are a Protestant Christian or, or a Catholic um, and you're keeping communion, where I differ with you is in the frequency with which I accept the symbols of the bread and the wine. So I think this stems from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, where Paul states that as often as we take those symbols of the bread and the wine, we proclaim the death of Christ until his return. So then this has led a lot of people to say, well, why take it yearly at the Passover? Why not weekly? Because weekly is better than yearly. Weekly is more often proclaiming his sacrifice. So isn't that a better thing? And while I respect the reasoning and the sincere motivation and intent of so many of these people who practice this, 
I, I don't hold to the same logic. Um, and just as an example, here's here's an example of why I think that logic doesn't really work out. Um, if it was someone's birthday and that birthday is commemorated once a year and they say to you, as often as you celebrate my birthday, you are celebrating my life. Well, by this logic, you would say, well, I want to celebrate their life every day, not just on their birthday. So I should have a birthday party for them every day. But of course, we don't celebrate a birthday party for that person every day. But we, we still celebrate their life every day. It's a good thing to not just kick that person to the side if it's not their birthday. But we don't observe their birthday every single day. That's not really a better way. That's just a chaotic way, even though it might be with good intent. And uh, maybe this doesn't seem like a perfect analogy at first, but I think it really is in the sense that the Passover was a commemoration of an event that happened in history. In the Old Testament, many of you might remember that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And this Passover event that happened was the final plague that God uh, put over the Egyptians. And he actually put it over the entirety of people in that land, Egypt and Israel. The difference was Israel was told to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on their doorpost. And when they did that, they would be protected from this plague. Um, of the firstborn dying. And so Israel did this and Egypt didn't, and they lost their firstborn. And the New Testament explains very clearly that Christ became our Passover lamb and that those events all those generations ago pointed to the sacrifice that he made for us. I think a lot of people, if they uh, take communion and they understand the symbolism of what they're doing, um, understand this to an extent. But it's worth saying because when you are doing this once a week, it can, I think, over time lose its meaning or maybe not um, intentionally lose its meaning, but maybe newer people who join your practice might not hear that message very often, right? So they come into it, they just think, okay, this is a practice we do. This is something that happens every week and we want to be part of the group, so we do it. And they might get kind of a cursory explanation but they don't understand maybe the depth of significance of what's being done. And so I just want to go over it just for those that might not be familiar that the bread and the wine are symbolic and they were when Christ took them at the Passover and gave them to his disciples, he was commemorating that ancient event, but also showing how it pointed to um, his taking of the place of that lamb, right? He was becoming that Passover lamb and so this is why Christ and his disciples celebrated it. Now, for those of you that want to say uh, to me, just you know, trying to guess some thoughts that might be in your head, that, well, Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law, and so we don't have to observe days like this anymore. Um, I take a little bit of issue with that um, because in the same way that many Christians continue talking about the bread and the wine at communion in remembrance of what he did, I take it at the time that Jesus took it. So if, if you want to say that Christ did away with observance of things like Passover, I would then have to ask, then why are those symbols still widely accepted, but the observance surrounding them is shed? You know, it's like, why have we taken part of it and carried it on into New Testament Christianity, but then rid ourselves of the thing that it actually commemorates or the fact that it is a yearly commemoration of something that pointed to 
uh, Christ all along. It wasn't like Christ came along. It was like, I'm going to take this day and make it about me. It was about him from the beginning. And from the beginning, it was commanded to be kept once a year. The only difference is we're not sacrificing a lamb on that time because Christ was that lamb. So he gave us these symbols of the bread and the wine so that they can picture what he did by taking the place of that lamb and really by taking the place of us who deserve that death. Okay, so that's a little bit about um, what the Passover is, why I still keep it, how I keep it, and then uh, maybe some some differences of opinion on uh, the bread and the wine and, and how often to uh, take those symbols. But now I really wanted to get to the main point of what I've been thinking about lately, and this deals in the foot washing. And this is the part of the Passover that may not be as familiar to some people, so I want to go into a little bit more depth with it. Um, I think foot washing as a concept is vaguely biblical to most people. They understand that it has its roots in the Bible, but maybe not a lot of people know exactly where it comes from or that it happened around the Passover. I think just because the word Passover has kind of become out of date or strictly Jewish, and so it's a word that's often avoided when it comes to Bible study and specifically Bible study surrounding Christ. You know, anything to separate him from Judaism, I think, is a, a pretty classic thing to do for um, modern Christians, but I think I think that's also kind of a mistake. But anyways, I, I wanted to go into this a little bit more in depth, so we're going to be reading um, a good portion of scripture here in John chapter 13. It says here in verse 4 that Christ rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Then verse 6 says, Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And I think this is an interesting place to comment because we're not really sure which order the disciples' feet were washed. Um, A lot of people want to say that Peter was like this prime apostle or the chief of the apostles, and he had some sort of status above the rest of them. That's especially prevailing in Catholic thought. And I'm not saying that Peter wasn't special in the sense that he is talked about quite a bit in the Gospels. Um, He was a very bold person, so you hear about him quite a bit. He had a lot of good insight. He was chosen to see certain things that not every disciple was chosen to see. Um, And I think he had certain responsibilities that Christ expected of him. So I don't want to minimize Peter's importance, but also it's interesting that He's not the first one to get his feet washed. So that's interesting. But then when you consider that, Peter has sat there and watched some of his closest friends and his brother possibly have their feet washed. And then he's still kind of questioning, like, this is going to happen to me now? And I'm not sure if he's questioning it so much logistically. Like, he knows this is about to happen because he's seen it happen to other disciples. Um, We're not sure how many, maybe one through 11, because even Judas Iscariot was still here at this point in time. So Judas's feet were washed, which that in itself is amazing and could be talked about for a long time. But Peter here has seen this happen, but he's still just blown away at the fact that Christ would stoop down to wash his feet. And I think rightly so, um, because remember, Peter does know here who Jesus is. He knows that he's the Messiah. He knows that he is the Son of God. And so for him to think so highly of Jesus and potentially so lowly of himself and 
now this is happening. But it's like, obviously he knew it was going to happen because he had just seen other disciples have their feet washed. But it's, I just think worth noting that he's still, it's almost like he, part of you wonders if he thinks like, well, I'll just be skipped over because I'm definitely not deserving of this honor. Um, so it's just interesting to think about when you consider that he was not the first person in line to have his feet washed. Um, so he asked Jesus this question, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. So he's putting up a bit of a fight here. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So then Simon Peter responds and said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So, you know, his, uh, resistance to having his feet washed is not because he wants to stop Christ from doing the thing he wants. It's because he, he just genuinely doesn't think he deserves this honor or that Christ deserves to stoop so low, right? But that's exactly, he doesn't understand, but that's exactly what Christ is about to do with his death is stoop to the lowest point that a human can in submitting himself to humiliation, misery, and death. Um, so he's kind of acting out a type of crucifixion, right? Where it's like the ultimate service. And so he says, if, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. So then Peter's like, okay, all of me, I want to all be clean. So Peter's kind of a man of extremes here, which is interesting. But then Jesus said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, and this is the portion um, where I would say that this kind of institutes a precedent set for future disciples. You know, often we want to read through the commission that the Lord gives to the disciples and say, well, that's a commission for modern Christians too. Or we'll hear the prayer in Gethsemane and we'll say, okay, well, he was praying for modern Christians as well. But at this portion, we want to say, well, that was maybe just for them. Um, to which I would say, no, I, I think this is for modern disciples of Jesus as well. So he says here, um, he sits down, he says, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So I think this sets a precedent for washing one another's feet, um, both figuratively in service to one another, but also literally, because um, there's no mention of them you know, going around and washing each other's feet at this point in time. Um, Jesus had just done that and they were cleaned, he said. But in the future, right, it seems to be that he's saying, well, you have to wash each other's feet because I won't be there uh, physically in person to do that for you. So it seems like this would have been a practice that continued on. And this is um, some justification for why I continue to do this um, during the Passover. Okay, so that's a little bit of background then on the bread and the wine, the Passover in general, where it comes from, why I still keep it, why I find it so important, and now also the foot washing, which is uh, leading into the main point that I want to make today, which is really just an interesting point, but I think it is so valuable in setting our minds right, um, especially for those of us who do wash the feet 
of other people at Passover. Um, but if you don't, I would encourage you to consider it uh, because I do think that it's a precedent that Jesus set for us. Um, but if if nothing else, at least we can understand the depth of what Christ did in washing his disciples' feet, not only as symbolism for what he was about to do as the ultimate service, the ultimate humiliation, um, the ultimate sacrifice, but also just um, who this man was, who this this person Jesus Christ was and what exactly he was doing to his disciples. And um, I talked about this a little bit, I think like maybe two years ago, um, just as you know, an aside, a little bit of background on foot washing in general, this was something that was not even expected of the lowest servants in a household. Back in Genesis, you have three men visiting Abraham, which I take to be the pre-incarnate Christ with two angels at his side, visiting Abraham. And even then, Abraham provides water for them to wash their feet, but he doesn't wash their feet. He doesn't stoop down to that level. He doesn't require his servants to do that. That was humiliating. That was unnecessary. That was the lowest of the low. And so when you think about just just culturally how um, belittling this was or how humiliating this was or how um, unheard of this was for anyone, even the lowest servant, to be doing this for a person and then to consider the greatness of Christ, um, I really think that juxtaposition is always something good to consider when we are serving our fellow man because we need to be esteeming others better than ourselves, knowing that when we serve others, we are in fact serving God. So um, not that they they are God, not that they are Jesus Christ, but we need to kind of take on that opposite role where we are putting ourselves lowly and in a place of subservience to people. And I, th- I think it just, if we emphasize that a lot and we get in that right headspace, then a foot washing can really, really do um, a lot of interesting things to our thought processes as we go forward and interact with people and just in how we esteem each other and how we esteem ourselves. So that's what I want to do right now is hopefully just add another point to that to show how incredible it was that Jesus Christ did what he did for his disciples. And I want to do this by going to the beginning of the book of John. So we were kind of um, towards the end of Christ's life in John. And now at the very beginning of the book, I think literally, I have to wonder if John did this on purpose, but we have this such an interesting saying um, from John the Baptist. So I want to start reading in John 1 uh, verse 19 because this is kind of the story and and how it starts from John's perspective. He says this, Now this is the testimony of John, and this is speaking of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So this was a delegation. There was a lot of stir in the area about John the Baptist and what he was doing. He was gathering crowds out in the wilderness for baptisms, and this was a really big deal. I mean, people were really flocking to him, and... The leadership wanted to know what exactly was going on. And what's interesting, something I learned recently, is that baptism, while it's a pretty common thing, uh, well, I would say very common thing in Christianity today, in Judaism, baptism was strictly just a cleansing ritual, which I think it's it's still the same, right? It's um, maybe taken on different connotations as time has gone on. But one thing that baptism was used for regularly 
Um, obviously, the Jews did ritual washings of hands and feet, especially before uh, meals and things like that. And also the priesthood did ritual washings to purify themselves. And again, if someone became unclean, there was also ritual washings for that. But um, baptism as a concept was something that was really, really important when a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism and become a God-fearer. And they underwent a, a full immersion baptism. And so what's interesting is that John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and he's bringing all kinds of people to him. I mean, all kinds are flocking to hear what he has to say. And even Jews are accepting this, this baptism. And so it's almost like representative of this idea that uh, it wasn't just Gentiles being called into Judaism. It was Jews being called to obedience to Christ, right? Which, I mean, obviously John's baptism was just to prepare the way to Christ. It was just for repentance. And it did not in any way accomplish anything that Christ accomplished on the cross for us. Um, but it was important and it was very interesting that Jews were coming out and almost like readying themselves for this thing that was about to happen. And so uh, the Jewish leadership was really, really concerned because it's like, are these Jewish people renouncing Judaism in favor of some um, sect of a religion out in the wilderness? And so they wanted to know what was going on. And they also wanted to know what John the Baptist said about himself, because any messianic claim had to be affirmed from the top. So this is what's happening. Um, the top, the Pharisees, the priests and the Levites, they're sending out delegations to go find out, is this guy making messianic claims? And what is he saying and doing that is causing even Jewish people to be fully submerged in baptism? And what are they repenting from? And what are they kind of changing their lives to? And so they ask him this in John 1, who are you? And it says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. And they said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So these three things were figures that the Jews were looking for um, to be coming, right? So the prophet being the one that would be raised up like Moses. And then Elijah, they were always looking for Elijah. Even today, uh, Jewish people at, at Passover Seder's We'll leave a spot for Elijah to come in and eat with them and usher in uh, new times. And that, that comes from Malachi 4. Um, the verse says, um, just going to read it from verse 5. So Malachi 4 verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So, um, People are, are waiting for this Elijah figure, and the Jews are not exempt from that. They're, they're waiting for this. So they're asking John the Baptist, are you the Elijah that's to come? And then they also ask him if he's the Messiah, to which he denies all of those. And so when they find out that he's not one of the big three, they're kind of confused because he's still causing all this weird stuff to happen. And so they ask him this. Then they said to him, who are you? that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? 
So remember, baptism is a, is a big deal. The fact that he is doing them, it's like, well, what authority do you have to be doing these things? And what are you baptizing them into? Why are all these people submitting to this? And what are they in some form or fashion committing to? And so John answers them saying this, and this is the thing that we've been building to. Thank you so much for sticking with us uh, up to this point. I know it's been a long build, but I really think all the background is going to make this point stand out so strong because we take the beginning here of John's gospel and then take the end of John's gospel. I think at the very least, we'll be impressed with how much work went into the composition of these letters. But at the most, I think the thing that I'm really, really driving at here is showing just how elevated Christ needs to be in our minds and just how lowly of a thing he submitted himself to in the washing of the disciples' feet and in the crucifixion that that all kind of built up to. And I think if we have this proper perspective in mind, it will really help us going forward in knowing how we should act as we follow Christ into this way of living. So it says here in John 26, remember, keep that foot washing in mind. So John is baptizing and he answers them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know, talking about Jesus Christ. And it says, it is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So think about this for a minute. John the Baptist, who Jesus Christ calls one of the best men to have ever lived, who did such an incredibly important work in preparing the way for Jesus Christ, was not worthy to loose the sandal from Jesus' feet. One of the greatest men, a very righteous man, one that was called, one that was chosen, one that was elected to a specific work on behalf of God, was not worthy to loose the sandal from Jesus' feet. And yet, here at the end of John, we have that same person stooping down to loose the sandals from our feet. And this is so amazing because even Peter, when Christ got around to washing his feet, we always emphasize this when we read this section. Peter asks, Lord, are you washing my feet? Implying that he should be washing Christ's feet. But even then, Peter was not worthy of doing even that. No person, no matter how good, no matter how elected, no matter how chosen, is ever good enough to deserve the life that Christ gave for us. Just take that in for a second. How incredible is it that we are not even worthy of serving him and instead he came down and served us? We did not deserve that. And I think inherently we know that we are not worth him serving us, right? If Christ stooped at any of our feet, we would say, no, please, this should not be happening this way. But we would be a little more comfortable washing his feet, right? But even that, John is saying, is a privilege that we do not deserve. And I think this just goes a little bit farther in showing us how incredibly high Christ is and how incredibly low he brought himself for our sakes. And that is amazing. It is encouraging. I am grateful for it. And it makes me read this section with new eyes, realizing that not only do I need to be incredibly grateful for what Christ did for me, but I need to be incredibly humbled for what he allows me to do for him in any capacity, because even that is not a privilege that I am worth. 
And so I think if we can esteem ourselves appropriately in relation to Christ and then view our fellow man in relation to Christ, right? I mean, it's that verse where he says, you visited me in prison, you fed me while I was hungry, you gave me drink when I was thirsty, you clothed me when I was naked. And they say, well, when have we done these things? He says, as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So as we serve our fellow man, uh, the least of these, it says, right? And not just least like the poorest, but least like the worst, the filthiest spiritually, the most depraved. We still need to show love to these people. We still need to serve these people and esteem ourselves just a little bit less. And I think maybe, I'm hoping this is speaking to you on some level. I think to me it's speaking so much because I've just, the past few months, I feel like I have really, really um, uncovered new levels of pride that I just hate about myself. And I realize that pride is not always um, the thing we think it is, right? In this situation, pride would be accepting without any question or feeling like we deserved in some way for Christ to wash our feet, right? That would be prideful. And we reject that immediately. And then we say, okay, we have no pride. We're like Peter, where it's like, okay, you shouldn't be washing my feet. I should be washing your feet. But even that is a certain level of pride where we esteem ourselves worth that honor, And I think John does a really good job at juxtaposing the beginning and ending of Christ's life and ministry with these two stories to show us that we're not even worth that. So it's not that we need to be down on ourselves. It's not that we need to hate ourselves, but just to recognize where we are in relation to Christ so that we properly esteem him and what he did for us and is continuing to do for us as we more and more fully submit to him. So... I hope this was interesting. I hope it was worth listening to for you. Um, If anything, I got a lot out of it. And I know there was a lot of buildup, a lot of backstory, and a lot of study surrounding it. There could have been a ton more. But really, I just wanted to leave you with this final story as I paired the beginning of John and the ending of Christ's life and ministry and saw these two things where at the beginning, John does not even count himself worthy to loose the strap from Christ's sandal to wash his feet, let alone to baptize him, even though that's exactly what Christ goes and does is be baptized by John. But also the fact that Christ, without hesitation, even for a second, made himself low, stooped down to undo the strap of the disciples' sandals and wash their feet for them. And I think this, as a picture of the crucifixion, um, really just shows us the lengths that he went to to serve us. And the lengths that we need to go to to serve other people. I want to leave you with one last verse that I think really captures uh, just the depth of Christ's love for us. The lengths he went to to serve us. And also what our response needs to be here at the beginning of this verse in Ephesians 3 starting in verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really do appreciate you following through the study with me. I hope you found it interesting and valuable, and I hope it's something to meditate on and at least count as fascinating about the Bible as you go forward in your studies and uh, do some reflection before this Passover season. 
So as always, until next time, keep on reading your Bibles, keep on thinking critically about them, and keep on applying the truths that we learn here to your lives. Thanks so much, everyone.